This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Is the second time, actually, I've given a talk at the University of California. And the first time was 49 years ago, across the street. Uh, and the topic was mental pain in schizophrenia. Uh, it was in Fred Cruz's seminar, uh, a wonderful seminar. And um, it's, I suppose, an odd time to be talking about mental pain, isn't it? This is a Tuesday evening before the Tuesday uh, in which we're going to all collide uh, in an experience, I expect, harrowing states of mind. Um, I feel a little bit like a surfer teaching the hazards of surfing on Phuket a week before the tsunami hits. Um, That said, uh, I'm going to recall a bit about my talk 49 years ago, because in a way it's um, relevant to the issue of mental pain, but to the pain, I'm going to try to restrict myself here to the pain that comes with having a mind, because we could speak about all kinds of things that cause us pain, but if we try to stick with the mind, we're on more narrow ground. And I know a little bit more about that, having worked with people whose minds get themselves into difficulty. I hope to read just one thing to you. I'm going to read um, from Yeats's autobiography. And in the first 10 pages of his autobiography, Yeats describes experiences in his childhood where he was hallucinating. Um, there are interesting descriptions. Uh, he clearly went through hallucinatory experiences, what we would call these days schizophrenic episodes. Um, and here's what he writes. I remember very little of childhood, but it's pain. I have grown happier with every year of life as though gradually conquering something in myself. For certainly my miseries were not made by others but were a part of my own mind. So when I gave a talk here long ago, it was about a kid who had written poems. And so the talk was about his poetry. Uh, And I can can still remember one of the stanzas of the poems, which was, I've got to make it to sex, 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 I've got to make it to sex. (laughs) I wonder why I remember that. Um, He also kept comic books. They were really more like daily accounts uh, that that, uh, he kept. He he would be composing them during the day. Um, And when he was either composing his comic books or when he was writing his poetry work, actually songs, because he would sing them. He was really experiencing a sort of peace of mind. He enjoyed it. It was helpful. Um, He had a wonderful habit of licking his uh, index finger and walking up to someone and putting it right on their forehead. And the other kids would sort of accept it. This was at the East Bay Activity Center, which no longer exists but was in Oakland, just below the Mormon temple. And so the kid would know at that moment that he was going to be put into the book, that comic book of the day. And this uh, uh, child 
who was composing this book and who wrote the poetry would say, this is the fickle finger of fate. And indeed, the children would be fated to be put into the book. Now, when he wasn't writing or thinking, because when he was walking around the school, licking his finger and putting it on people, he was actually composing his book before he actually sat down to write it at the lunch table. But when he wasn't in the, engaged in the act of composition, one way or the other, he was in great, great pain. When he was writing, he would sometimes say, I'm the master of the universe. I'm the master of the universe. When he was crushed and devastated, he would say, I'm a shrimp at the bottom of the sea. I'm a shrimp at the bottom of the sea. And he said it with such conviction that all of us around him felt his pain. So I learned something from him without entirely knowing what it was, which is kind of the story of the life of most psychoanalysts and clinicians who have a sort of monastic contemplative life. You sit behind somebody or you work with somebody for hours a week, months, years pass, and you're learning something, although you don't quite know what you're learning. But he helped me with another kid there who was my primary child to help, who had come out of autism. He was nine. He was strong. Uh, he was uh, very, at times, quite violent. Um, and a heck of a challenge, but he was wonderful. Um, and anyway, he was my kid. I'd look after him. He would come through the gate uh, to enter the school. And, well, depending upon the look on his face or certain gestures, I wouldn't know whether the entrance was going to be relatively quiet, phobic, uh, violent. I could even figure out, roughly speaking, who he might attack. So um, the therapy, so to speak, uh, amounted to my basically trying to find some way to get hold of him and escort him out to the lawn, which overlooked the bay. Beautiful view. And then uh, try to back up against the wall of the school and drop down onto the grass and hold him. And I would hold him like that for, oh gosh, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, sometimes, you know, 40 minutes, you know. And, and this would be any time of the year. So if it was a cold, damp day, I mean, it was soggy bottom time, really, um, because you, one would be you know, drenched in, 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 in the rain or whatever it was that we call it. Um, and I would, he would calm down. He would calm down. Um, I had a lot to learn. He would go home, or he would demand to go home, or by then the school would say, he's got to go home, when his um, pendulum wasn't working. And uh, he had a pendulum in his bedroom. And it would, you know, it was a pendulum. And it had these... Um, domino-type objects. And if the pendulum was slightly off and it knocked over a domino, he would know it. And he would say, I have to go home. So we, we would send him home. So when I asked the Francis Lemon, the uh, clinical director, I said, gosh, I said, have you ever seen his pendulum? And she said, Christopher, there is no pendulum. That's in his mind. I thought, oh, right. I mean, I actually thought there was a pendulum. 
It's, uh, Victor Tausk wrote an essay called The Influencing Machine, and uh, I probably read it 10 years later, whatever, but even if I had read it, I'm not sure it would have been in mine because it was so convincing. But at that moment, he'd lost his mind. Okay. So every day was like this until one day, and I suppose I got this from the kid who was composing stories. I don't know where else it came from. I said, how about I tell you about um, an orange ship? Where is it? A, a, a well, let's say it's, it's uh, in, in the Mediterranean. Where in the Mediterranean? I don't know. Maybe it's uh, you know, near Cairo or somewhere like that. And they're going to the Suez. Who's the captain of the ship? I said, well, you know, I don't know. You're the captain of the ship. And so it went from there. So for the next six, seven months, um, he would come through the gate. And we would go out together, sit not on the lawn, thank God, on a bench. And, but I had to tell him the story about the orange ship. And each time was more or less the same script. Whatever port of call we would visit, we had to meet, according to the wishes of, of the Department of Education in Oakland, some minimal educational requirement. So I would try to teach him a little bit about the world and so on and so forth, throw in a bit about the Acropolis and so on and so forth. Um, but each time that we, we would go to visit the land on one of these voyages, and by the way, the crew, of course, were all the other children in the school and the staff. So um, uh, I would describe something about what was to be learned there in the port of call, and he would say, and such and so-and-so was eaten by an alligator, and so-and-so was picked up by a giant bird and uh, taken away. And so every time there was a landing, there were horrifying events happening to everyone um, on the ship. And in my own naive way, perhaps, I said, right, well, that's your story. I'll tell you mine. And I would give him a different version. So then about that seven or eight months of this, every single day, and it would take an hour or an hour and a quarter, um, he started to laugh. And it was a different kind of laugh. He had a very um, upsetting laugh before this. It was a laugh that was sort of haunting and disturbing. This was a laugh laugh. And um, he said to me, you don't get it, do you? And obviously I didn't. And I said, what? He said, I'm joking. I'm joking. And that was it. Um, We didn't need to talk about the orange ship anymore. He had gone through a stage in his life, in the life of his mind. The um, influencing machine, the pendulum was gone, and he just started to get on with life. It had something to do, obviously, with what went on between the two of us. It had a heck of a lot to do with what goes on in all of us when we negotiate and survive the hazards of life. And he just got on with living. Um, So he taught me something. Um, Of course, if we focus on mental pain and the life of the mind, we can say, well, we don't know much about what it's like in the first year or two, three of life. Perhaps the most disturbing mental event we have uh, are our first nightmares because we don't take them to be nightmares, products of the mind. We take them to be actual events. I mean, I can remember when I was about five, and my second brother was three, he would wake the whole house up 
every few nights because there was a tiger in his room um, and you know it was going to kill him. So my father came in one night and opened up the closet door in our bedroom and there was this huge commotion going on inside the, the, the door and he went bang, bang, bang. He came out and told my brother, Mark, the tiger is dead. Mark slept peacefully after that. And from that moment on, I was scared to death of my father. <laughs> so, um, stories can work. They can help us. And we hear a lot of stories when we're children. I mean, you know the stories. Uh, Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny. Squirrels talk to trees that talk to... Uh, stones, there are friendly brooks. The world is, is animated in a wonderful way, a very reassuring way. Uh, it's sort of like um, a fairy tale to help us transition from being genuine ingenues. I mean, what the heck do we know as six-month-olds or nine-month-olds, even though we love to study infantile skills and cognitive capabilities and so on and so forth, really we are not very um, bright in the beginning. We don't really know very much at all. Uh, and so uh, it's a long, long time before we can, quote, unquote, think properly. Um, so we have a, a wonderful stories are told to us that help us because we're going to have to go through some pretty difficult transitions. And I, I think the concept of psychodevelopment is very interesting. It's true, there is psychodevelopment. We do develop biologically and psychologically and neurologically, for sure. But um, in our need, perhaps, to slight, to gloss over the hazards of life, the complexities of it, we're inclined to sort of not attend to those moments, in child, ordinary moments in childhood, which are just very disturbing, in which it can be said we sort of have breakdowns. I mean... Um, a child who has a nightmare is having a sort of breakdown. I mean, that's sort of what it is. He recovers or she recovers through maternal or paternal narrative or interventions. The parents are constantly helping children to recover from very disturbing events. Um, if you even try to say to yourself, well, we're in a family. We've all been in families, right? We take it for granted. We know what that is. I don't really think we know what a family is, actually. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, Mnuchin and other brave family therapists believed they could assemble a group of folks in a room, families, and get them to talk to each other and sort out through family therapy, family conflict. But after a while, um, they were so overwhelmed, as you know, they needed to have two-way mirrors in which they would disappear, go back in, have a chat with three or four colleagues to try to figure out what to do next. <laughs> Because the, uh, the, the conflicts inside the family were such that after a while, a group of five or six people in the same group called a family, you wouldn't have ever thought they, they, they knew each other. You would have thought they never had met each other. But in a way, there are certain things that you can't think. You know, if, if you've gone and you've seen Mahler's second symphony, and you come out of it and... Someone says, well, well, tell me about it. What was it like? I can't tell you what it was like. Um, and I can't tell you what my family was like. So there are certain things in life that are unthinkable. 
because we can't think them, not consciously. However, we have assimilated them, we have integrated them into some internal unconscious matrix that is there. Now, when my brother and I get together, having been in the same family, we can talk about it. And so it's in him, it's in me, and so we can share that together because we've been through it together, although experienced it separately and differently, of course, but still, we have a sort of inkling of this. So families are sort of unthinkable phenomena, uh, yet the predicate of the family is it set us up for life. And off we go to school, and we think we know where we're going. We go to kindergarten, and guess what? It's perhaps our first experience of group life, a group that's not our family. And so there are other children who come from other families, uh, small do-it-yourself groups, uh, asymmetrical relations, and we're meant to know how to live inside a group. And that's a pretty hazardous experience. And I hope perhaps today we'll have enough time to get to, uh, to life inside the group mind because we have problems with our own minds, thinking about things ourselves, but then we're all part of a group mind, which we now know very well indeed as being American citizens, if most, most of you are, inside a group process called an election, uh, where um, we have to try to think about what's going on and talk to each other about what's going on. Very, very difficult indeed. Um, so, but when you go off to school, the complexities of school life, the fact that children can be suddenly very cruel, friendships can terminate at a moment's notice, there's a, lay, a labile nature to this that we're somehow meant to be able to deal with. It's very, very painful. Now, those of you who are parents who've had children, you know what it's like when your six-year-old son or daughter comes home heartbroken, telling you that this friend or that friend or someone has done or said a terrible thing. And they're shocked. And there's a certain kind of look on their face that I'll be talking about uh, in the course of today's lecture or an attempt at a lecture. Um, there's a look of bewilderment on the child's face, just bewilderment. They, they can't think about it. They don't know what's happened. So you then start becoming a sort of psychologist of sorts. You know, you're trying to help them understand how people, quote-unquote, change their minds, uh, how don't take it too seriously. But how can you not take seriously the fact that you're best friend or a good friend has said something horrible about you or done something horrible or you've seen something horrible. Now we tend to be in deny what we have done that's horrible. Uh, somebody's always wrong if they think we've done something horrible but otherwise we see it outside ourselves. So let's just call those moments when a child comes home, when a child is devastated at school an ordinary mental breakdown. It's kind of what it is. Uh, and what do parents do or teachers do? Well, they, they do therapy. They help the child recover his or her uh, stability, his or her trust in a way in the group. May have to take a couple of days off school. Um, there may be some parental conferral or maybe some conference to try to repair the damage. But you're also trying to renew the child's um, 
let's call it participation in the stream of consciousness. You just want the kid to get back in the stream of consciousness. You want them to believe that they can go on thinking and dreaming and living their life without being too anxious about things. Ironically, you don't want them to think too much. By the way, every so often I, I dip into the social sciences and see what the latest stats are. <clears throat> My favorite discovery this year is the research that we are daydreaming 47% of the time during the day. We daydream. I always uh, thought we daydreamed a lot, but I didn't know it was 47% of the time. Secondly, three universities have collaborated to study this. When we're daydreaming, we're actually solving problems. And um, students at university, given complex, very complex mathematical problems that, would, you know, that were hard to figure out, that had to do with series numbers, um, only one out of 10 students was able to solve it in the class consciously. Six or seven of them solved it overnight, three of them in dreams, and the others while they were daydreaming and not thinking about it at all, just popped into the mind. So part of what they're concluding is that the children who are looking out the windows at school, who seem bored, um, and who are bored, are more, pro are, are more productive than those who are paying in, in, in intense attention. In, very interesting, isn't it? Because what this research is indicating is that the daydreamer who is given over to unconscious thinking is actually engaged in intense, deep thinking. Well, okay. So our minds, if we can get back into the stream of consciousness, if we can just get back into unconscious thinking, um, we can recover as well from the trauma of life. However... Uh, well, you probably remember what it was like to be a seven, an eight, or a nine-year-old. Um, I think it's round about then that we realize that although in the previous eras of our life, ages three or four or five, we could turn to mom and dad, maybe talk about this, that, or the other thing, get some help, right? Six, five or six, maybe to a teacher or others, and they would help us with whatever was bothering us, and you know world of thoughts and feelings. But then we start to have pretty upsetting thoughts all by ourselves. Uh, first, sexual stirrings will produce ideas. Certain aggressive thoughts will come to mind. Uh, nasty, cruel thoughts, thoughts driven by envy, competition, all these sorts of things. Now, this is when we tend to go rather quiet. We don't tend to turn to people to say, you know, I've had a very strange thought cross my mind. No, we tend to sort of go undercover. In a way, it's the beginning of a type of solitude in which we turn to our mind as a type of companion. Now, my own view is um, the mind has all along been a kind of companion. Um, I think of it as a sort of a muse. Um, I think, for example, I've often thought of reading, in reading Boethius's The Consolation of Philosophy. I mean, I think for him, the muse is rather like the mother holding him uh, in the months before he's to go to his execution. Um, but, but we all have this muse, if by that we understand this to be the origins of mind itself, 
which comes as a result of that collaboration between the mother, the father, and others, and our infant self, because mothers are constantly holding us both literally, figuratively, psychically. They set limits. They uh, soothe us. They calm us. They translate us. And so between the maternal mind and the paternal mind and, the, and those around us and the cultural mind, the social dreaming that we all live in that perhaps we'll get to later on, um, we then develop our own mind. But in my view, psychologically, unconsciously, that which was out there in the mother and others and so on, we gradually take into ourselves, remains, um, as Hannah Arendt says, a type of dialogue, which is the two-in-one. For Arendt, the mind is two-in-one. So we have a relation to our own mind, and we'll turn to it at times to say, um, well, what do I think about this? Whatever. Sometimes we're asked what we think. Well, what do you think? What's on your mind? And consciousness might come up with something. But in fact, um, much of what we're thinking, of course, we're thinking unconsciously. Much of what we know, we know unconsciously. So there's a very complex relationship going on here, an intra-subjective relationship. I know intersubjectivity is very important, but not more important in my view than intra-subjectivity. Um, uh, what sort of relation do we have to our mind? What kind of conversations do we have with ourselves? It's an interesting world, and I think it's interesting literature, although it's a failed literature, whether it's Georges Bataille's inner experience, whether it's Vygotsky's literature. Whomever is really trying to get to the conversations that we have with ourselves, I haven't read yet an account of it, which gets close to what it really feels like for myself and I think for others. So there's a certain kind of inevitable solitude here, isn't there, to the intersubjective relation. Now, um, by the early part of adolescence, we've only just, let's say, understood what childhood is. I mean, we're, you know, in fifth or sixth grade, we're feeling pretty good. You know, I, I felt pretty good. I liked kickball, dodgeball, tetherball. I mean, uh, I, I, I like the fact that uh, girls and boys liked each other and, you know, were, were kind of like you know, sexuality was just not a big deal. Uh, and and it, it was nice, in my view, that it wasn't such a big deal. Um, and so I had lots of girlfriends, as in girlfriends and boyfriends, and it was really quite nice, quite decent. Uh, we, you know, there were problems, but it was a lot of fun. Then, my God, along comes sexuality, the biology, and you know, we are just not prepared for this. <laughs> at all, not prepared for it at all. And so it's an extremely disturbing event. In fact, it's a form of annihilation. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of annihilation. You know, we, we, we want to think life is progressive, that each stage makes some kind of sense. We have all sorts of narratives meant to help us to sort of see where we are in the evolution of ourselves. So this is all meant to be rather good. Uh, and in fact, in some ways, it's extraordinarily wonderful. But then again, we're beginning to have um, all kinds of thoughts at an incredible pace um, that we certainly don't want others to know about. 
we don't even know really what we think about them. Um, and probably the easiest thing adolescents can say to one another and be absolutely spot on about this, oh, you're two-faced. Right. Uh, to be a hypocrite is to be an adolescent. You have to be. It's kind of the beginnings of the, the false self. You've really got to fake it. And adolescents are, of course, very skillful at developing a place in their groups. It's where the peer group becomes extremely important, doesn't it? Being part of a group, a consensual behavioral uh, pattern, and so on and so forth. Now, I've worked, all, all of the so-called mental illnesses, the major ones, begin in adolescence, whether it's the anorexic's decision to say, you know what, you can all go forward, become adults, I'm out. I'm back to childhood. So they're on strike. It's a pretty, and they're pretty intelligent. It's a very intelligent strategy, and it tends to work. Um, other kids uh, have more disturbed experiences. Those who have manic depressive episodes have a really problem, a very serious problem with their mind. Those who are schizophrenic have serious problems with their minds. Uh, there are far more transient psychotic episodes in adolescence than we're in the least bit prepared to discuss. There are ordinary phenomena in adolescence which we think are wonderful, like the tendency of adolescents to idealize things. We think of idealization as just great, right? We do. But in Great Britain, idealization, maybe it's due with the weather, idealization is viewed as a sort of psychotic state of mind. So it's not unusual. I mean, in Britain, folks would look at um, the youngsters going off to ISIS as just rather typical psychotic adolescence. You know, idealizing, you know, the dudes out there in, the, in Syria or whatever. You know, yeah, adolescents will do something like that because they're kind of out of their minds. They're idealizing. So some, some kids will idealize the Peace Corps or Habitat for Humanity and go off and do what are great things. And others will go up and pick up a gun and kill people. But they're still idealizing. Okay? Adolescents are, you know, kind of nuts. Now... I'm going to tell you about what I've learned from those adolescents who are having breakdowns. Um, I'm going to talk, <coughs> excuse me, first about a schizophrenic kid. Um, he's one of the few I can talk to you about. He's, um, I get a call from the parent. This is typical, a 16 year old kid. Um, describing the fact that his son uh, was pulled out of a baseball game and has been staring out the window uh, blankly, uh, and would I please um, see the kid? Sure. Now, um, kid comes to see me, and he has that look on his face that I told you about with a kid who can't believe what's happened. All people who are having breakdowns, whether they're psychotic breakdowns or non-psychotic breakdowns, have that look of utter bewilderment on their face. I'll come back to that in a minute, but I, I mention that to you because it's the first visual indication of a person being in really deep trouble. That is breakdown. That is the first indication of it. And guess what? You, get, you see it. You see it before your very eyes. Although we tend to negate it, it's there. So um, he went into his, the wind-up for a pitch. Uh, he was a relief pitcher. Um, he went into the wind-up, 
And as he was about ready to deliver the ball, he looked over his left shoulder, and the batter and the strike zone were 50 feet behind where it should have, they should have been. And they were very small. And he threw the ball, and it went over the batting cage. So uh, he was disturbed, and he went back to the mound, went into another windup. Same thing happened. They got small, they disappeared, and he threw the ball over the batting cage again. Coach comes out, says, begins to talk to him about what went wrong, and he can see that clearly the kid is distressed. He takes him off the mound. Um, and so we're talking about this, and I said, gee, uh, how's your team doing? One of the things you learn is you cannot ask abstract questions to somebody who's had a breakdown. You don't say, how are you feeling? No. You try to stick to the concrete and to the particular. So uh, what, what, you know, how was your team doing? Uh, do you remember the score? Yeah, we were way behind. I'm not going to go into all the details. It would simply take too long. But by going to the details of the situation, by going back in time, bearing in mind this is a person who's in shock because what happens in the schizophrenic moment is you experience a radical split in the self. So the notions that schizophrenia does not have to do with a split in the self, that, that, that's not true. It is actually a split in the self. This, the first moment in the schizophrenic experience is profound state of shock and being outside yourself, usually watching yourself from a distance. Okay. Um, so there's a radical sh uh, dissociation and when I asked him about where he was and what was happening, you have to go back into the everyday. You're taking a history, You're going to try to find out what happened. He said that just before he went into the windup, he heard someone gig laughing in the stands. And I said, right, laughing. Now, he wasn't saying who was laughing. So I said, so, um, so, uh, somebody, you could hear somebody laugh? Yeah. So, you know who that was? Yeah. So, who, who, who was laughing? Uh, and he named a girl. I said, wow, oh, geez, she laughed. You, you know her? Sort of. Which, to make a longer account shorter, this was the girl he was in love with. But she didn't know it because he, didn't, he hadn't had the courage to tell her that he was in love with her. But she'd laughed. And that was enough to take him out of himself. That was so shocking, he couldn't recover. And he had a transient psychotic episode. This is the first stage of the schizophrenic process. I mentioned process because it takes several stages. And if you catch it in the beginning, and you can find out how it started, if you can do the history, you first learn why the person dissociated. They then learn why they split and dissociated. So they learn something. You learn something. That's important. But also, you get them back into the position where they can speak as an I. I did this, I did that, I thought this, I thought that. Getting them back into the narrative function of speaking of the I, rather than vacating the position of the I, it's extremely important. Okay. In addition to that, um, 
I do what I'm sure you would all do. Upon hearing this account, it, it's heartbreaking. It, you know, you can't hear something like this without feeling the kid's pain. And it's easy enough to say, oh my God, that's just terrible. It's just awful. Now, um, it's never been my experience that with a person who's going through a schizophrenic episode, that that has brought about tears. It, it, it hasn't. They're too far away from that. But if one sticks with one's affections, and I mean by that being speaking with affect, I, I think we, we need to be affectionate, i.e. speaking with affect, um, in order to engage the person's uh, emotional potential. So that's important because you then get back to the potential for an emotional experience. And I'm going to come back to that in a second. But there's something else that is accomplished by going back to the event. Okay? And that is this. Both those who have manic depressive experiences and those who have schizophrenic experiences lose their place in space and in time. Radical dissociation means you lose your location. You're suddenly no longer a part of the everyday. So many times, you, you, the next stages will be, at some point, the schizophrenic, the, the person who will become schizophrenic is going to have to invent a space and a time. So if left to the process, they are going to say at some point, uh, well, I come from another planet. I come from Zion. It's a long way away from here. And I'm 35,000 years old. They're in space and they're in time. They're inventing it. It's got nothing to do with the world around them. And that's the whole point. That they can control. That they can live in. The mind, they have got to recover in that particular way. But that's quite a ways down the road. If you can relocate them in history, in space and in time, if they can get back into that spatial temporal reality, they're going to be okay. Uh, it will take a while, but they're going to be okay. They're not going to go on to become full-blown schizophrenics. Now, this, this is accomplished by talking to them every day. Uh, you may have to talk to them for two hours or three hours, which is not very long given the stakes uh, that are at play here. There is also a period, they do want to get back into the everyday. And there's an awful lot to be said for getting back into the everyday. For Freud, the everyday was the daily residue. But it's the stuff of life. The everyday is the day of lived experience. It's the day of nourishment. It's the day of food for thought. It's where, we, it's where we're nourished by experience. We're nourished by things we see. We've got to get back there to be nourished. So, um, but there's a problem here because, as you can imagine, they feel terrified now by their mind. They've had a terrifying experience. They don't trust their mind anymore. And you can understand why they don't trust their mind. But they're youngsters. So one of the ways you can help them is to say, hey, look, look, look. Hey, you know, you are a relief pitcher. You were going in there. Your team was down 13 to nothing. 
you've lost every game in the year? I mean, come on. And then you hear somebody you love um, laughing. I mean, you know what? You, you did something that meant you had to get out of the game, right? You threw the ball over the batting cage. You know, it's kind of smart. That's kind of an intelligent thing to do. You got out of there. I mean, you got out of there, right? You got out of there, right? That's a pretty smart thing to do. It's a pretty smart thing to do. And actually, most of what schizophrenic kids do like that, there's an intelligence there. And if you help them to see that it was a form of intelligence, uh, then they, re then they get a, a better feeling for their own mind, their own mental process. Yes, indeed. I guess being crazy is a way to escape unbearable mental pain. Okay. But there's a period then of some mourning, because if you've lost your mind for a while, there is this feeling of abandonment. And so you remember when I said that there's this kind of stare on the kid's face? Uh, they have been abandoned. Now, the kids at school have been abandoned by their, the texture of their belief in life, by all the assumptions that have gone into the stories told them about the wonderful nature of, of school, the children, all the fairy tales. They're, they're stupefied. And so you'll see that look of, of, um, of stupefaction as well and with a schizophrenic kid. Um, it will take weeks and months for them to begin to trust their mind again. And so if you work with a, an adolescent who's schizophrenic, you're going to get telephone calls from them maybe five years later or eight years later or 10 or 12 years later um, because there will be memories of the episode when they think it's happening again. And it isn't happening again. What's happening again is they're remembering what happened. So it can take a long time for them to trust their minds again. Now, a fair number of um, kids will then, interestingly enough, turn to fiction, to reading, or to poetry, uh, to reading fiction or to novels or poetry, although it will take a while for them to do that. It's very interesting. Um, perhaps it makes sense that if if they haven't, let me put it slightly differently. If they've heard voices, if voices have occupied their mind because the subject has disappeared, if the eye disappears, then voices will start to show up. That's why it's so crucial to get them into the narrative position. But if you haven't been able to do that, and they then have a full-on schizophrenic episode, they're going to have voices occupying their mind, and that's awful. After that, folks who get to that place aren't going to want to read fiction aren't going to want to read poetry. Why is that? They don't want any thoughts entering their head anymore. They can't deal with them. They've already gone crazy. Are you kidding? You want me to read this novel? Uh, but then, it's very interesting, if that has not happened to them, or those who have recovered through psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, or whatever, or just good enough uh, parental care, um, they will turn to fiction. They will turn to reading. And because, in a way, it, it is a way of, of experiencing an other's mind. I'm not saying that in, when you read a novel, you are reading, you're entering the novelist's mind. I'm not saying that. But you are going through an experience that will be painful, often, can be mentally painful. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You lose yourself in it. 
It can be disturbing, disorientating. And you, but you get to the feeling of, of the form of another's mind. You're helped by the form of the mind of the other. And whether you're doing this because you have gone through psychotic episodes as an adolescent, or whether you're doing this simply because there's just something smart about immersing yourself into fiction, about the act of surrender to another's mind and experiencing how they take you through um, the intensities of mental life and mental pain. Back to emotional experience. Remember I mentioned that the, you speak with affection to the, the, the adolescent. An emotional experience, Movari, is very different from an affect. It's a moving experience. Emotions are not just affects. An emotion is a more complex form of thinking in a way than is a dream. Because it's, it's intensely ideational. It's, it's interstitially connected with uh, layered affects. It's deeply unconscious. And it's curative. It's healing. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So what one wants to try to get the schizophrenic kid to go through, or anyone's recovering from a, a mentally... Uh, challenging and disturbing experience is to go through the emotional experience that they would otherwise have gone through had they not been arrested, shocked, and, and had to go into a radical dissociation. So emotional experiences are very, very essential to our existence. That's, of all the emotional experiences that I know of, that are prof- the most profound emotional experiences, other than, I would say, certain idioms of music, certain forms of music, it, it's poetry. Because I think great poems um, do invite you into an emotional experience. Uh, and you go into the form of that experience. You endure it. You're not quite sure what you've read, what you've learned, and what, what is it. That's fine. Because the, the relation of consciousness to, the, to what was unconsciously um, learned or taken in through the poem, that, that ambiguity, that tension, that's, that's, the, that's the stuff of life itself. So every time you read a challenging and interesting poem, you go through something akin to an emotional experience. And I think the writing of a poem for most poets is an emotional experience. That's what it is. How do you get an emotional experience out there, written? It's extremely difficult. Um, so in that way, the poem is a curative, uh, is a curative event. Um, let me see where we are with time. Oh, bloody hell. When am I supposed to stop? <laughs> it's, it's five past six. Another five minutes, ten minutes? Okay, I'm, I'm going to have to... St- I can't talk to you about the poor... That the individual who goes through the manic depressive experience, other than to say, as you can imagine, when in a state of depression, there's an incredible sense of betrayal, the loss of the mother mind that was looking after them and feeding them intoxicating uh, thoughts when they were manic. Uh, in the manic state, there's a terrible feel, a feeling of dread that they're going to succumb to the depressed position, that they'll be back into that horrible state. So here you have a very interesting situation of individuals in great mental pain oscillating back and forth between two very radically different positions. Uh, It takes time to work with this person, but again, talking to them in each one of these two states is very 
helpful with folks who are in deep clinical depressions. I, I just get them to do things. One, one thought with one kid who hadn't been able to go to work, I said, well, just, why don't you just, well, I'm being too cryptic. The first thing I said to him is, look, with a mind like yours, I wouldn't get a good, I wouldn't get out of bed either. He wouldn't get out of bed. I, I wouldn't get out of bed either. Stay in bed. Well, why try to get up? Uh, he would come to his sessions because he would be brought to sessions by, by someone. Um, then I said after working with him for a couple of weeks, I think actually you're on strike. I think this is a strike. I mean, yes, you're depressed, but I think you're saying to the part of you that's excoriating you every morning and saying that you're a bag of rubbish, you're no good, you're awful, this is what was happening to him. So I think you're protesting. I said, you know, that's a pretty good way to protest, isn't it? You're saying, okay, right, if you think this about me, I'll, I'll be like this. So he wanted to know what we could do to help him mentally. And I said, I tell you what, why don't you just go back to work? He hadn't been to work for six weeks. How, what should I do when I get, no, don't, don't think about it. How long should I be there? I don't know, a minute? Just go, go, to your, go to your desk, sit in your, in your chair. Uh, and I actually bet him. I wagered him. I said, I'll wager you this. Gentleman's bet. I think after about a month, you're going to be okay. How do you know that? Well, they don't really know it, I, but it's, you know, it's a bet. You know, it's my hunch. Just do it. Don't think about it. So here I was, an analyst, telling somebody not to think. Uh, just do it. I realized this, or I came up with it, not consciously, because after working with him, um, I did something I hadn't done with any other of my patients. I found it so upsetting. I would walk him to the limousine and, and put him in the car um, because when I first saw him in the waiting room, it was like seeing a four-year-old child. He was 20. But it was like seeing a four-year-old who was just... He was trying to smile, but the smile was turning down. So it was utter helplessness. So you know, I took him into care, took him down in the car. Then I would walk back, not to my consulting room or back into the house. I'd go for a walk in my garden, which I'd never done before. And I had a basketball court back there. And I'd, sometimes I'd shoot a, few, a basket or two. Then I'd go back in the house, wait for my next patient. And so I think it must have been out of that that my recovery from him was to go for a walk, just to go out into the landscape. And so that's, I think, why I said, just go to work. Just get out there. And then he did that. He was able then to get back to work, recovered. And then as time went on, we looked back on what it was like for him to be in such a catastrophic depression. And, well, that's a very long account and so on and so forth. In the remaining five minutes, uh, let me just say very briefly en passant, the work of history that we talked about here, the therapeutic efficacy of history, is extraordinarily significant. So in the many concept of historicity has to be the, the, the concept here that it's to do with, in the world of the self, and the ordinary self, the, the, the thinking about one's past, one's history, one's especially recent history, extremely important, especially when one has gone through a psychologically turbulent uh, uh, state of affairs. So um, we need to rethink the value, in my view, rethink the value of history. Um, we're all part of a group, and we're all part of a group mind. Whether we like it or not, and we don't like it, we are part of a group. 
So the life of the mind itself is quite overwhelming, and we have many ways to dumb ourselves down, pairing off, getting married, being parts of clubs, and so on, are ways to dumb ourselves down, because uh, were we to just be occupied by our minds, we would go nuts. You know, it would just be too much. So we, we have very good ways to dumb ourselves down to be able to bear uh, the complexity of mental life. Um, in groups, um, the objectification of the complexity of, the, of minds and emotions is overwhelming. But um, in Great Britain, there's a training, it's called a group relations training, where the analyst learns that his function as the consultant is to help every member in the group understand that whatever he or she says is a function of the group. So someone can say something awful, and the analyst is going to say, the group thinks that. So the individual is not isolated. The group thinks that. So uh, if one were talking to a Trump supporter, etc., cetera, uh, one would say, the group thinks that it's unfair to live in this country because we're being left out. That's what you'd say. Now, the function here is to detoxify the more toxic sides of affect. It's to try to reverse the paranoid process because paranoia is where we go to solve the problem of the mind. Why? Because paranoia simplifies mental life. Mental life is, at times, unbearably complex, and it's much more complex than we actually even want to know about. So we're all narrowing it. Paranoia not only narrows the complexity of the mind, it turns simplicity into pleasure. It turns that pleasure into a form of hate that will stay with one for as long as you want it. Love comes and goes. But if you want to have hate with you all the time, you got a reliable companion. You can hate for the whole of your life, and by God, it's going to be right there, right there with you. So um, what do we do if part of the way we solve our problems is to get rid of complexity, uh, go towards hate, narrow the realm of thought, uh, and enjoy ourselves. Because the com competition here is not necessarily between sanity and insanity or the psychotic parts of the mind and the non-psychotic parts. That's part of it. But, the, but a problem we've got here is that those who would have a more, let's call it, a, a democratic frame of mind, a more representative mind, where you have most of the dimensions of thoughts in your mind, you're trying to have... You know, think of lots of things to be inclusive, etc. I mean, that's not really pleasurable. That's complicated. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of like the federal government, checks and balances. You know, it's like, it's just a world of sort of frustration. Whereas um, the paranoid mentality is just divine. It's just so delicious. It's so delicious. But we have to see that what we're up against here, therefore, is... Um, whether we can bear our minds in, within the group process, whether we try to pass it off to so-called representatives, you know, electoral representatives, good luck. You know, or whether we decide we're actually going to have to become more involved in meeting opposite minds, trying to, uh, to stop the polarizations, to try to deter the tendency towards paranoid squeezing and paranoid pleasure, because it's so pleasurable 
that um, if, if allowed to continue, in a sense, we're up against something by we, I mean, those of a, let's call it, a more democratic mental process, more inclusive, of, of more elements, more dimensions, we're going to lose. We'll lose. So um, I'm sorry to be so cryptic here. I really am. Uh, the, the, the question, the, the, pro, the, the project, let us say, of how leaders can develop group minds and work with opposite figures to, to collaborate uh, over uh, and deal with opposing thoughts uh, is a really interesting area. I, I work a little bit off-piste in um, advising people in government, dealing with very complex issues where there are adversarial um, uh, states of mind, and uh, knowing, getting them to understand that as a group they're responsible for the mind that they're in. Um, we're all inside what we could call social dreaming. All societies dream. We call it culture. We all dream. Every day, every night, the media, whether it's the CNN or the print media, whatever, it's dreaming our dreams, and we contribute to them. And sometimes they're interesting points of convergence. I'm going to end with one. Um, where, what's on her emails? What is she keeping? What, what don't we know about her emails? I mean, what is she keeping from us? And by the way, what about his taxes? What is he keeping from us? And, and by the way, Dylan, why the hell didn't you respond to the Nobel community? <laughs> what the hell were you thinking about? Now, in, in social dreaming, you, you get these convergences. For, for Freud, there are nodal points where cultures, societies begin to converge around particular uh, unconscious fascinations, right, or preoccupations, that then gather force and power. Um, and so what's on your mind? I mean, are you keeping something from us? I mean, is it classified? Uh, or what label of classification is it? Is the FBI around, um, et cetera? In other words, there's a certain fear here about what's on the mind and who has the right to privacy. Who has the right to have a mind? Okay. Okay. I'll stop there, and I hope this hasn't been too painful. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.